0: Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about
1: sacraments. Yes, the sacraments. Yeah. yeah. All right. Caleb, we had somebody send us uh, a testimony because of last week's episode. So I want to share a portion of it with us tonight because I think, you know, it might help some folks. He says, most recent episode, whoa, or whoa. How do you say W-O-A-H? Waha! Okay. (laughs) Lots of things to think about. I'm thankful for the acknowledgement of the mystery of it all. I actually got kind of emotional at the end and shed a few tears because I was reminded of an experience I had at 18 when my grandfather visited me in a dream. My grandfather had Parkinson's disease basically for as long as I can remember. I really didn't feel like I knew him. Then my junior year of high school, I began to write a paper about him for school. The week I wrote the essay, he passed away. In the process of writing that essay, I began to feel like I started to know him. I always regretted not really getting to talk to him. Fast forward to my freshman year of college, I have a dream. In the dream, I see people walking in and out of a church. Lots of people. I see my mom dressed in a hound's tooth jacket she used to wear when I was little. The image zooms out to where I am, sort of like a film where it goes from showing the people to the second floor of a window through the school and as he's looking out at the people he says I'm in a classroom on the second floor and my grandfather is there playing games he catches my eye and there's a kind of knowing look to him suddenly the two children who are in the dream as well are gone a large square in the floor glows brilliantly white as if consecrated for this moment. Somehow I know that my grandfather has entered my dream. He tells me some things. He tells me that he's sorry he didn't get to know me and he asks me to be a good son to my mother and a good grandson to my grandmother. Suddenly it's like the volume on his voice is getting turned down. I know that I am starting to wake up. He begins to cry because he knows I cannot hear him anymore. He tries to write more things on the board to communicate with me but I cannot read them. I wake up. He says, I will never forget the look in his face knowing that our one and only conversation is coming to an end. I trust one day I will see him again. And then he shares this part. In college, I was part of a ministry, campus ministry of a particular denomination, and I tried to tell them about this experience right after it happened. Everyone thought it was weird, and I tried to brush it off. Honestly, it is the doctrine of the communion of the saints that has given me back this really meaningful experience. So I think that's a it's a good testimony. It's in it's representative of some of the things I know we were hitting on last week about the the subjective and particular nature of events like that where if indeed this was a, a grace from the Lord where he was healing some of these things that our friend was sharing about or and this is difficult for some some folks or the subconscious it's not. It's not God doing something with the soul of his grandfather, but the, the Lord permitting the subconscious to work in such a way that there is now grace working to heal something. It could be either one, and without the Lord, and I'm not saying that to to say to to disparage the idea that the Lord did, you know, let his grandfather come back in, in this particular way. I mean, this human history is full of this. Uh, we could cite many references in Christian history where this has been the case. The point I'm making by saying all of that is that it's deeply meaningful, it's incredibly powerful uh and the therapeutic in a positive way I mean that in a positive way the therapeutic thing that happens to the soul because of it is that whether it is really the soul of his grandfather or just um, the subconscious doing something you know while you're asleep, both of those things are graces from the Lord because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above the Father of Lights, right? And there's no shadow or uh, variation or turning in him. So I wanted to share that. He wanted to share that. He said, you guys can, free, you're free to share this as, 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 you know, if you want to. So I thought we'd share that one from some of the things that, that folks have talked to us about because of last week's episode. If you hadn't listened to it yet, uh, Sheol, yeah, I, it's, it's <laughs> worth the time. It's worth the time to listen. So having said that, are you ready for the sacraments? I think so. Okay. All right. So I have a question.
2: Ready? I hope to have an answer. We'll see. Okay. Yes. Um
1: what is a sacrament?
2: It's sacred. <laughs> Thanks, Gil. There we go. That was good. That was good. Uh next week word parsing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: man, when I was in elementary school, the teacher would say, "Why is the sky blue?" And I'd say, "Or what color is the sky?" And I'd say, "Blue," right? And that was not the answer he wanted. He wanted, "Well, in the evening when the sun is moving to the west," The light particles bounce off the dust in the atmosphere to create the different color sunsets. That's why it changes color. And my response was, you asked what color the sky is, and on any given day, it's blue. But, right. You feel that, Caleb? You can got that. Every day of my life. (laughs) Every day. Okay. Uh, Sacraments are invisible signs. No. They are not. Right. Sacraments are visible, so we see them. Visible signs of invisible grace. So, sacraments have two parts. There's the tangible part, and there's the untangible, the spiritual part. Uh, Nope, that's wrong. That's something i got to correct, Caleb. Man, i got to get that through my head. I fall into the same speech pattern of of, of making spiritual uh, a synonym for ghostly, or spiritual a synonym for invisible, and it's not. It's not. And that was a point I wanted to highlight in our episode today anyway. Is that to be spiritual is to have your physical life and existence ordered after the principles of God's kingdom Jesus has a spiritual body right now Paul says in first Corinthians 15 he doesn't mean it's immaterial he means it's material glorified driven and empowered by something that is not part of the you know the world as it were that we we understand and operate in the sacraments are a bridge as a matter of fact Uh, You may not have thought about this. The sacraments are extensions, if you will, of the incarnation and the power of it, the power of Christ and of the word becoming incarnate. So the sacraments aren't, they're not bare rituals, they're not bare memorials, they're not ordinances in the limited sense. They are the actual means that convey whatever virtue they're supposed to convey that is part of christ's kingdom so we have to reflect on that because it quickly you know we can jump into how many sacraments are there at what point do the church decide that's the number that there are and but if we don't get the idea down the rest of that stuff's moot
2: yeah exactly and i, I think the you kind of brought it up in uh saying that just like uh spirit spiritual and ghostly are not um synonymous um i think in common parlance they are
1: Yes. And that's the problem we have. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, even I had a question the other day. Someone was asking me, uh, why do we use the word Holy Spirit now instead of Holy Ghost? It, it, like, same right. line of logic, really. Right. Uh, you know, we're dealing with some different things. Um, but I, I think when you bring that up, the fact that they're not synonymous it brings up another point is the fact that they're like effectual. Yes. Like, I, I think that's, that is the best verbiage that I've, I've read. Um, because it's not, not just are you not dealing with something that's just like immaterial, but it's a right. it's it's effective. Right. Um and, and that is when these and That's things, what effectual
1: means for those who don't know. It actually the sacrament effects what it's what is it, mm-hmm.
2: what so, Well, and something's actually happening. Um when we're starting to talk about when we're talking about the sacraments, like something is actually happening. These aren't just mere ceremonies. These aren't just us doing something because it's cool or because it's happened in the past. It's beyond that. When these are happening, there's literally something happening. There's uh, grace being um, bestowed. Um, I, I think on all involved. Um, it's some more, some more than others. Like you. Like,
1: and that's the question I was going to ask you. What is the? How do you regulate? Not regulate. How do you measure? How do you quantify effectual? So if we say that the sacraments are effectual, how do we know that? Why, why do we see a variation in the effects of the sacraments? Do you understand what I'm asking?
2: Well, and I think that depending on the sacrament, again, the idea, because there's certain things that we know are happening. Like, for example, you look at the two that, you know, baptism and uh, the Eucharist, like those, those two, like we, scripture shows and tells us what is happening in baptism, and i think it does as well like we we have what's the best i don't know proof yeah so we would be we, I think here, probably the best the way to the,
1: the the efficacy of the sacrament is dependent upon the faith of the recipient no
2: well some like for example um baptism because like that i think that would be one that it would be like i don't think you can because they are so different and even what they what is happening like some it does some it doesn't like if someone doesn't believe that they're like in the baptism that's happening then they're just getting what like what's the difference between uh hopping in a pool and this
1: this is a good this is a good discussion part here before we get into the seven sacraments oh, yeah. right Yeah, a hundred, because yeah. what makes them effectual is it my f- personal faith like because here because here's the contrasting idea ex opere operato by the working of the work so when ex opere operato gets sundered, separated from the faith of the recipient, you end up with magic. When faith, the faith of the recipient gets separated from ex opera operato, you end up with, we, we, we hammer this all the time. What do you, what?
2: Ritual or?
1: No, no, the, the person has faith, but they have no, there's no, they, they have an invisible, you see? Mm-hmm. Like, they, it's, that I'm justified by my intention. We, we talk about this all the time. It's the non-sacramental way that many American Christians are living and just how wrong that is. So now I'm justified or, um, baptized, whatever, whatever sacramental point, uh m- marriage. I mean, how about this one? I'm married by intent. So I've heard through the years <laughs> of pastoral ministry of uh, the guy, and it's often the guy who says to the girl, we're married in our hearts. We don't need to go to the courthouse. We don't need to go to the church. So let's just go ahead and be engaged in married life, as it were. I don't think I need to spell it out any more than that. Because in our hearts, we are. And so that romanticism, because that's and that applies not just like in everything, romanticism itself, is what you get when you take faith and you hold the faith of the recipient, or the intent, we would say, apart from Ex opere operato, you have to have both, and the sacraments to refer back to the to, to the, the the true idea that they are extensions, as it were, of of Christ himself somehow, or some particular whether it's his own f- uh, flesh and blood or some work of his right so something of himself, an extension, because the Word has become flesh. He hasn't ceased to be material, and he's he has opted sovereignly to work through material to achieve and and to bring grace. So even the preaching of the word is a sacramental act. This is something the the Orthodox churches really highlight is just the, the fact that the kingdom itself, you know, the, the church is the sacrament of the kingdom as it were. So everything that God's doing in the world is being done in a sacramental way from that sacramental way we can then begin to look at scripture and see the sacraments specifically and we can look at those and then begin to like how many are there and we'll talk about that in a minute and why it's changed through history but i want us to get that perspective and i hope our hearers get that perspective that the sacraments aren't rituals if if in in the bare sense if you approach the whole service cuz the whole worship service on a sunday the holy eucharist is liturgy right Ritual the whole thing, but it's all sacramental from the the procession itself is the beginning of the sacramental Experience that is conveying grace to me from Jesus himself And there's different highlighted moments within the service that there's particular graces that he's giving whether it's hearing the word of god whether it is the the uh, pronouncement of absolution the celebration of you know the eucharist itself the body and the blood soul and divinity when we talk about receptionism that's wrong receptionism is the tec- technical term that the uh, eucharist becomes the body and blood because i've received it in faith no it's that's not true and this is the case with all the sacraments they aren't what they are because of my impersonal faith they are what they are because of four other primary components. We've talked about this in the past. Um, and they're very simple and they're so simple. You can have them, you know, you could be like Lucy in, um, in, uh, Charlie Brown, right? Remember when they're uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas. I know we're in the middle of summer, but, uh, (laughs) Charlie Brown's right. Lucy says, I'm going to give you five good reasons. And they said, what are they? And what does she do? Have you all seen that show? Yeah. What's, What's Lucy do?
0: Doesn't she like make it into a fist? Yeah.
1: She says one, two, three, four, five and turns them five digits into a fist. And that's her reason. Right? She, she was very abusive in that relationship. She, she, well, she was offering psychiatric help too. Anyway. Oh, yeah. That's uh, true. So that. you can, you can take these four things and then, you know, make, make a fist with them. Here, here's, you know, if I was doing a good, good old past, old fashioned Pentecostal sermon in the mountains, I'd say, and it's the fist of God that's come against the kingdom of the devil, you know? So you, you, you can take the four, turn, hold your fingers in and wrap your thumb around there. Okay. So here they are. It's the minister. And the minister changes based upon the particular sacrament. So, for example, priests cannot confirm. They can't ordain. Only bishops can do that. So the minister, the matter, the matter, what is the stuff? What is the visible thing that you can see? The form, which is a reference to the liturgy. What, what form has to be involved with what's going on? And what's the fourth one? Intent. Intent. And that is not my private intent, but the intent of the entire church and we know because day fide teaching of the church so this is a matter of faith that we cannot um, we cannot negotiate day for day statements the communion of the saints is day for day so the holy catholic i believe in the holy spirit the holy catholic church the communion of saints right there in the, in the apostles creed the holy catholic church and the communion of the saints are not synonyms but they're very close very closely connected the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints isn't just the church militant that's on the earth right now. It's the whole of Christ's body. This is one reason, one, one simple reason we appeal to tradition, because if the church has been teaching what the Word of God has meant with the sense of faith, census fidelum, the, the, or the consensus of faith, uh, they've been teaching that this is what these things mean, and it was that way, argue Luther, for 1,500 years if we want to look at all the different denominations that have risen arisen in the past few hundred, if it if it was a certain way up until 1960, what happened that the Holy Spirit suddenly had to change what he was doing? So that automatic, so the, the voice, the, the uh, tr- uh, Chesterton, tradition is the d- democracy of the dead. So the people who've already gone on to re- through their reward, who've passed into to, to the other world as it is, they aren't gone from us. We just got done t- talking about that. With Sheol, I mean, we, 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 you're right. What you said last week, Caleb. We need to do another thing on the communion of the saints. I think, but they're living witnesses. They, they, they've left a witness for us, a, te- a testimony for us, and they're also living witnesses in Hebrews 12. You know, you can, you can kind of deduce both of those meanings from the text. But what they said and did still applies. So why would God change His mind? And so this is where intent is not privatized. If Scripture was not written by a prophet's own interpretation. And if Scripture is not interpreted by an individual's or a sect or a contingency within the church, if Scripture can't be interpreted by private interpretation, where in the world do we come off thinking that we can change the sacraments? This is very important. It's very important um, for all the ones we're going to talk about. So I think you get those four things down, you you realize that you need to have a proper complement of ex opere operato and living faith that's what the article's warn against is engaging in the sacramental life of the church specifically the Eucharist, but extrapolate that that out to everything else engaging in the sacramental life of the church without living faith and you're bringing damnation on yourself because you're hardening yourself to God's grace so we have to keep that in proportion or keep them as compliments that makes sense yeah it does okay I don't know if that was too what. Did he say?
2: No, I mean, it was uh, honestly, if if you've been listening with us from the beginning, that, that should have been a little bit of a review. I hope so. so. But you know. if you haven't, then there you go. You got the crash course, the, the down and dirty yeah. there.
1: And that obviously, once you start to get that awareness and begin to perceive that the church is an organized organism, the church is an organization and the church is an organism and those aren't separate things. They're both. If your body is disorganized, you are sick. So the church is an organized organism, and she operates by the by the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the means by which the Holy Spirit orders her life is the sacraments, and that can take us into the first one. Okay, so here's the here's the uh, the seven sacraments commonly called, right, east west across the board. Here's the seven, and if I get one, Caleb, that has a different terminology, or even the one you've got, Adam. Because some of these are called different things. This is what throws people off sometimes. You ready? In Anglican parlance, we have the two sacraments of the gospel. Baptism and Lord's Supper. No. Eucharist? Eucharist, yeah, Lord's Supper. (laughs) Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, And then the other five commonly called sacraments, even though Rome and the East don't like this. They don't like this particular division. And we'll explain why we make it here in a moment. Um, Confirmation. Penance or absolution, unction, extreme unction, or the anointing of the sick, and marriage. And lastly, or, ordination. Yeah, holy orders, ordination. There those things, so here's why the Anglican Reformers made a distinction. Because when you take those four components that we mentioned, a minister, matter, form, and intent, we only see two in the Gospels that are instituted with those four things, and that's baptism in the Eucharist. The other five commonly called sacraments are established by jesus in generous in general so we don't so here's i'll give you an example we could do all all five but it would take a much longer podcast than we've got time for marriage does jesus describe the way a marriage ceremony should be in the gospels marriage ceremony does he describe the way a marriage ceremony should be in the gospels
2: i would say no, he talks about the effect afterwards, but the exact ceremony.
0: No. Yeah,
1: he teaches about it all, in all the gospels, right?
0: He gives some sort of structure, like man, woman, like kind of like that. Yeah, so he that, he ad- that's what Yeah, I yeah, yeah.
1: he right. So he teaches on it where he addresses the matter, male and female. Right. He addresses the intent that needs to be there, but he does it throughout the gospels, and he attends a wedding. That's another big deal. Matter of fact, in our prayer book, because he was at a wedding. And made there and showed there his first sign as John says the first miracle which anticipates the Eucharist and the changing of the covenants. the apostles are able to go back refer to that and Paul gives us lengthy information in Ephesians five
2: does that does that also mean there should be wine at weddings I, I just want to see how far we're taking this
0: Sure okay so but there has <laughs> to be water as well
1: <laughs> yeah so you 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 can see in marriage it goes all the way back to the beginning it's a constant through scripture. Jesus takes it explains the the new covenant expectations on it that that only death really undoes it you know um we can get into marriage and talk about annulments and that kind of stuff another time but uh, it's and and I'm bringing the other reason I bring up marriage it's the only thing in the new testament that's called mysterion or sacramentum of all the seven sacraments this is the only one actually called a sacrament in the actual text the literal words of the new testament the others aren't called this so these are this is a theological theological categories that we derive from the tradition of the church history of the church so in marriage you we see jesus in general establishing it yes yes yeah. but we don't see him establishing it in the same way we see him establishing baptism and the eucharist another distinction is that you don't need to be married to be a christian but if you're a Christian who gets married, how you, your marriage takes on a sacramental quality and you are either reflecting Christ or the church in your marriage. So it affects your sanctification. It affects your final judgment. It affects everything about you. It's a state that cannot be undone. And it's the same thing with holy orders. So let, let's talk about, I'll use that as a second example. Does Jesus ordain the apostles?
0: Gives them authority, yeah. That's in sense. On them.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we have him giving them commission in Matthew 10 uh, and all the other gospels too. But Matthew 10, we've got – and that's pre-cross, like pre-passion. After the resurrection, he breathes on them, giving them priestly power. But he breathes on them. He doesn't. We have no record that he laid his hands on them, right? But what do they do in the book of Acts when they appoint – when they ordain? They lay hands on people. They lay hands. We don't have record of them blowing on anybody. Now, an interesting t- development is that after the right, the era of the New Testament, the bishops both lay their hands and blow in the face. Uh, Hi- uh, Hippolytus talks about it in his apostolic tradition. So the point being, in general, do we see Jesus establishing ordination? Yes. Does it have sacramental quality? Yes. Uh, this is where Christians interpret scripture very, very poorly. They read Matthew 10 and they say every Christian now should go out, heal the sick, cast out demons and raise the dead because that's what Jesus told us to do. No, he didn't. He told the apostles to go do that. And then the apostles are given an, a, an extra dimension to their ministry after the resurrection, which is priestly to forgive sins. The spirit now determines which members of the body operate in those gifts not everybody operating in them, let alone operating in them with the authority that the apostles did. It's a different it's a different category of thought, but we have to keep that in mind, right? So he Jesus establishes the apostles, and he says, whoever receives you receives me. So there's holy orders in general. So it's not—the the article 25 of the 39 articles that deals with this is not saying that we don't have a sacramental life. It's highlighting— and making distinctions that help us when we look at Christian history, so if you open up the prayer book, marriage right, ordination right, penance or absolution, reconciliation of the penitent, the anointing with with oil for the sick, it's all in the prayer book, so the the reformers aren't saying these things aren't sacramental rites, and that's some of the language that we use around here, you know um what you call them sacramental rites, not to make them not sacraments, but to help really emphasize. The, the importance of baptism and the Eucharist. And then the other five, I'll call I'll call marriage a sacrament. I'll call ordination a sacrament, the whole the whole thing. But just kinda we we do kind of preserve that little bit of distinction, but there's seven sacraments. And I think that, that jumps us into a little bit of history here for a moment. So when do you think the church identified seven sacraments?
0: I was gonna take a wild guess. Try it. Sixteen hundreds First seven.
1: No? Nah, no. Too far? No, yeah, too far. Because the 39 articles articles are written when? 1,500. Right, yeah. in the 1,500s. Okay. There we go. Latter portion. 1,400 then. <laughs> 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 um, Augustine says that exorcism is a sacrament.
2: Separate from? Yeah. like You know, like you could even... So the,
1: the point I'm bringing up is that when you get into the medieval schoolmen that we've talked about, one of them, who was it? He found 27 sacraments. He was looking hard.
2: I'll tell you that right now.
1: Uh, you, well, you get that number by going through the fathers of the church. And how many times do they call something a sacrament? So since Augustine calls exorcism a sacrament, anywhere else, one of the doctors of the church would use the term. They then would, you know, so the later schoolmen would say, okay, so we, do, we have this many, we have this many, we have this many. So it's around the time of Aquinas and a little later, the number starts to get whittled down from 27 to 12, then on down to 7. um basically in the Middle Ages, and yeah. that is a, a Western development. The East doesn't do it like that. As a matter of fact, you'll get the Eastern Orthodox churches to write about the seven sacraments because they know that's common speech. But if you sit down and listen to them theologically, they don't like numbering them at all because the kingdom itself is one giant sacrament, and the church is the place where all of that's happening. Much more organic, not as uh, systematic. We Western Christians really still, we, 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 we rejected the the romishness right but then we've still kept that same legal mind or or systematic theology mind it's not to say that the east isn't i mean read alexander schmayman or anybody else geniuses but um, so
2: so would they so their logic would be more like there's effectual grace happening here yes so
1: like what the and the and and the effectual grace is based upon the sacrament that's being received Mm -hmm. why do you have to have a number well that's just a you know i don't know Western Christian thing let's just have a number to it so we can write a book and make articles like that's why I- and so when you when you get to the when you get into the English Reformation they're saying that because of the emphasis of scripture solo scriptura we, we talked about that for a few weeks solo scriptura article 25 the five commonly called sacraments and it lists them are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel being such as have grown partly of the corrupt following of the apostles what do they mean by that Penance is an example. So penance is part of the gospel, because in the gospel, penance, or absolution, penance is derived from the law of Moses, right? So if you, if you stole from somebody, and the law of Moses required that you paid it back, how many fold? Seven. <laughs> Just kidding. Four? Four. There we go. When Jesus goes to visit Zacchaeus, what is it, the ta- and he's a tax collector, what does he do? He's stealing. But right, but what does he do after he's had dinner with Jesus? What well, he
2: pays him back fourfold.
1: Pays him back fourfold. And the Lord says, Salvation has come to this house. So penance, meaning you you didn't just feel sorry for your sin, but you actually genuinely repented. True repentance. It's in it's in our confessional in morning and evening prayer in the longer form. You know, if you truly confess, you truly repent, and part of true repentance is contrition and then paying back or undoing the wrong if possible. Right? Well, nobody has a problem with any of that. Even the method of confession, never in Christian history until recent history and modern centuries was there this notion that you could confess your sins without going to the priest. God gave that power to the Levites. You went to the Levite. And you confessed your sin and offered your animal and paid you whatever you had to do. I mean and the Levites aren't stupid. If you show up with a giant heifer, oh boy, you <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot to say today. <laughs> so Are we talk on the side. That's yeah. right. I mean, they, they know. And Jesus gives that power to the apostles. Yeah. James says in chapter five, If you whoever sinned, let him confess his sins and he'll be forgiven. And so we take that and we do a new descriptor on on it. But what is right smack in the immediate words, not even paragraphs, words around it? Call for the priests, the elders of the church, to anoint him with oil. So there's the healing prayer, the anointing of oil, and the confession of sin, the application, there's the priest, but it's corporate.
2: This reminds me of a a song that they would sing in a Bible college Uh, It was one of those uh, 7 Eleven songs, seven words, singing 11 times. And it was, like you bring restoration. And that's like everybody gets super emotional. Yeah, the Lord restores. Yeah, which, you know, he does. Uh, But we thought it was funny and we would
1: sing that you bring restitution. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, know. there, there you go. There you go. And so when you get into, when you take the development of penance through Christian history, if you committed notorious sin especially before christianity became legal let's say somebody committed adultery they in some cases would be up to five years before they could come back into the church and that was five years of them proving they were really sorry or you were a traitor you you denied christ when persecution began there were those that argued you could never be permitted back into the church that created a split with the novicians and the donists right so the, the the i don't want to go too much into the various practices but to point out Penance has always been part of the church's life because it's that is the expression of genuine repentance one of them anyway and the and the particular penances were appointed by the priests now what happens in in in, um, after the Constantine so to speak is the church appoints priests who are the penitentiaries why do you think we call jails what we call them The, the 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 bishop appoints a priest who's Basically, his sole responsibility is when he's hearing confession to assign penances that are particular to the person, their temperament, and the sin that they committed. And they have to go and then demonstrate repentance before they're welcomed back into the church. That was never, or I'm sorry, the, the um, when you get into the English context, confession was not public in front of the people. It was private with the priest. So they privatized confession. And the Celtic church was very instrumental in this. So even like speaking to the last work that you see on TV, that's not a medieval development. That goes back into the early centuries of Christian history. And it was a way of reducing scandal. Okay, now let me, let me, I could keep going on more about this, but let me abbreviate it. What obviously happens a couple centuries before the Reformation that gets wildly atrocious, but the rise of the sale of indulgences, and then you buy the indulgence and that's your penance. And to make it even better, just send the money down to St. Peter's to build a bigger basilica, a bigger church in Rome. You know, So Tetzel atrociously says things like, you could violate the mother of God and he could give you an indulgence to get out of it. So, 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 so they're selling the forgiveness of sins in the same way modern charismatics on TV sell the anointing. So you need a massive renewal, a massive reformation. Well, when the article 25 talks about corruptions that develop, so they're not getting rid of the biblical practice or the, or the early Christian practice. What they're nailing is that, listen, all of this stuff that we see right now, contemporary, contemporary to us, this doesn't have a practice in Jesus's ministry in the Gospels. And it's not resonant with what the apostles did. It's corruptions that happen later. So we're gonna we're going to articulate the calibration here a little different, but we still preserve it because the priest gets up and pronounces absolution to everyone who's truly repentant. And so you, in the reformation in England, you that's retained. The priest is legitimately granting and giving the forgiveness of sins. He's not just making a statement that it's happened. And you can, to, to reinforce that, look up the other in, in our prayer books, the 2019, but they go back through the prayer books all the way through until they began in 1549. And you'll notice there is the communion of the sick or some, some particular, um, some similarity in title where the priest specifically says to the, to the person, to the person confessing his sins words to these effect. I I forgive you. I forgive you. It's prefaced with, you know, Christ has given his authority power to, to forgive and not to forgive sins based upon your confession, et cetera, et cetera. I forgive you. So it's even more focused in the private confession than it is in general what we have in the anglican practice is that the general is enough if you come into the church service and you genuinely are repentant and you're offering that in our general confession then you're receiving full forgiveness so we don't insist upon private confession or what right or regulating penances like that kind of stuff isn't part of our practice but absolution and penance they are I mean that it's left up it's it's I'm trying to figure out the exact lingo I want to use here. It's not as um systematic and it's not designed to earn any redemption or any forgiveness. You can't earn it anyway so the 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 penance component is what is bringing you or what Wesley would call you know works of righteousness, so you're already a Christian, but you're engaged in these these good healthy disciplines that are causing you to address things in your heart that need to be healed and that's what penance is supposed to be doing so there's another example
2: so out of the you, you so the five essentially we can see through history we can see examples of them throughout the text of them happening but the form isn't necessarily there um are there any that the form is there as well as the other things
1: yeah baptism and eucharist and that's what you're seeing with the reformers and the english reformers is, is that distinction we don't have in the Bible you know, anybody exchanging rings to get married, right? But obviously marriage is there. In baptism, you've got to have water. You can't baptize in milk. You can't <laughs> baptize in vinegar.
2: It sounds terrible. Both of those sound absolutely <laughs> can't, terrible. You can't
1: baptize in jello pools. Remember those? Those were a big thing for youth groups some time, some time ago. You know? uh, None of that. you got to baptize in water. There is variation on total immersion or pouring. We see that as early as the D decay. And it was really, what do you have access to, right? Uh, but it's got to be water. It has to be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, or the form is incorrect. That's that's the form. So the matter is the water. The form is are those words of of uh, baptism out of Matthew's gospel, and the the intent is for someone to be become part of the church becoming part of the body of Christ we'll talk about the theology of it here in a second but oftentimes the sacraments the expanded articulation of really understanding what happened happens post event it happens afterwards so to be baptized is you know to believe in Jesus and and you want to follow him to be a disciple minister this one is is really interesting
2: this this is like my the the when I was thinking about this and pondering on it because like defining it yeah Uh, By the the four requirements or the four different, um, I guess, the the breakdown of the sacrament. This was, baptism was the one that I'm like, that's interesting.
1: Because it is entrance into the church, oftentimes people say, well, it's got to be a priest. Or someone will say, a bishop. Or someone will say, no, deacons can. And then you get somebody that will say, well, no, anybody in the church can baptize. An atheist can baptize. Then you get into like, well,
2: I guess anybody can,
1: you know. And then atheists can baptize because the principal minister, the chief minister that causes every sacrament to be effectual is Jesus working through the Holy Spirit, right? In baptism, the minister doesn't have to be a believer. So why would you do that? Well, you wouldn't do that unless you got hit by a truck you know, and you're a catechumen being prepared. You know, for for or or you're a, you're a a um a catechumen who's been arrested by the in the early church, and you're they're about to feed you to lions, and so you ask your pagan buddy who's about to be eaten because he's a gladiator. You're like, listen, I haven't a chance to get baptized. They won't let the, the deacon or the priest or anybody from my church come in here. Can you do it for me? And he says, oh. Well, yeah, what do I do? And you say, here, here's my flask of water pour it over my head and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he says, okay. And he does it. That guy's baptized. I mean, you know, we, we, we surround the sacraments with pomp and circumstance. Many of them, we do that. And that's to highlight, to accentuate the fantastic graces that are being conveyed, but they're not necessary to convey the grace. It's the matter it's the minister, it's the form, and it's the intent. It's all very simple. The extra stuff that we do is to highlight and to celebrate in the same way that, you know, you celebrate a birthday party, you know, certain birthdays in culture, our cultures get celebrated more than others. You know, how many people celebrate their 11th birthday the same way they celebrate their 16th or the 21st or their, their 90th? Well, not typical. There are people who go out for every birthday There are all don't play <laughs> there yeah. are but you but you see the, the, the see yeah the point. yeah so in baptism what is happening is your sins I mean right out of Titus 3 your sins are being washed away you're being and that's out of the book of Acts as well you're being regenerated by the Holy Spirit you're being grafted into the body of Jesus himself and you are putting on Jesus. You have joined him in his death and are sharing with him in his new life of resurrection. That's all out of Romans. Now, people have said, no, baptism just means that I already believe. Of course you would believe before you got baptized, because in the early church, you had to spend three years learning the gospel and whether or not you were going to obey it before you could get baptized. So, and we've talked about that at length as well. So, baptism is, you are are ontology, you're being, you're, you're genuinely being grafted into Jesus's body and Jesus has one body you got behind the mic on that oh how about this can you hear me now yeah not Verizon you can leave that in there Uh, Jesus (laughs) Jesus has he has his Marian body right his physical body but he's got one body that's the church and so to be added into his body is to become part of the church and that's what baptism does so does is someone who wants to be a Christian but not been baptized Is their intent enough to give them what the scripture says happens for someone who's baptized? No, because your intent isn't what gives that to you when the sacrament's celebrated anyway. Because you don't need this. Sacrament is not the defining hinge for the validity. Validity and efficacy are not the same. Validity is, is it the way it's been prescribed by Jesus and the church, so something can be invalid, and Jesus may make it effectual. But if and when He does that, He does it in an unknown, way, unknown way to the rest of us. And one of the evidences that someone has received graces that are effectual that have come through an invalid or an invalid manner is that they will, because of the sanctifying grace of being part of the body of Christ, s- seek out a way to enter into the valid form. It may take a while because of the the multiple kinds of churches and and, and denominations that we have. Um, But validity and efficacy aren't the same. If it's valid, it's efficacious. And the strength of the efficacy, is that's when my personal faith becomes a key important part. But it's not what's making it the sacrament. The sacrament is a valid sacrament when those four components are in place.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that logically flows because I I don't, I don't think you can go about living your your spiritual life being like, oh well, the ends justify the means.
1: Well, the, because right. I mean,
2: that's what you end up with. Well, it works, so let's just keep doing it. It's like, I think you're missing the point.
1: I had somebody ask me last week why so many Pentecostal churches and other churches that aren't necessarily Pentecostal, but they're you know they're they're enthused, they're excited. Why are there so many miracles there? Why, are there, why is there so much of God's uh, grace, you know, the, the grace that gives the Spirit at work there, if they're wrong about baptism and they're wrong about the Eucharist? And so well, that's an interesting question. I think rephrase it and just go right back into the book of 1st book of and 2nd Corinthians. Go right go back to the Bible itself and look at all of the miracles in Corinth. And Paul says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. But these people, look at their sinfulness. I mean, I mean the divisiveness, the immorality, the lawsuits, the drunkenness, the gluttony, and they don't believe in the physical resurrection. Like, that's really what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15. They're backing away from that. And Paul is bringing to them the apostolic correction and the comfort to say, you will be presented blameless, and to abbreviate his meaning, how much fire you've got to go through at the judgment seat to get there remains to be seen. But you will be presented blameless at the day of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter six, if you, to abbreviate, if you continue in these behaviors, you're evidencing that you're not part of the kingdom of God and you're never going to walk into it. Okay. So you got to hold those intention. So seeing the graces of the spirit operating somewhere doesn't mean he's saying that it's correct. He's saying that those people have a, have a desire to be part of the body of Christ or that they are part of the body of Christ. We don't have miracles in our midst because our doctrine's correct. But having miracles doesn't excuse us from having correct doctrine I mean that's a big lesson to the Corinthians and so baptism is a big one because you get baptized one time if if there's such a thing as multiple baptisms here, let, let me tell you what that means theologically that means there's more than one body of Christ It means there's more than one God it means that you could fall out of the body and fall back into it it or it also means that you're baptized only because of the death depth and sincerity of your focus none of that's true You die one time and you rise one time because it's not you, it's Jesus. You're being grafted into him and you can only be grafted into him one time. And Paul says, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all. If there's more than one baptism, there's more than one God. There's more than one faith. There's more than one Lord. There's more than one church. So they're away with this rebaptism stuff. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous, because it continues to perpetuate this idea that we are saved by our intent and our strong feelings. That's not true. It's not true. So there, that's that's the first one. The second one is the Eucharist, right? Uh, people can be baptized in vain. They they can they can I mean they they can be a, they may not have be repentant, right? So you can't baptize somebody who's not repentant unless we're talking about infants. So the a different, different dynamic there. The second is Eucharist. The Lord establishes everything in all three Gospels and then gives us a lengthy discourse of what it means in John 6. And then again in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul lays out the, the, uh, the institution of the Eucharist as the Lord's Supper. All four things are, are present. What gets people uh, today, and this was the case up until the Reformation, the, the matter has to be bread and wine. Grape juice didn't exist back then. Welch's got really wealthy because of temperance and stuff, but there was, uh, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, in a Mediterranean climate, the juice uh, that's pressed out of the grape begins to ferment like within hours, like within days, seven days, you've got fermented wine, right? Uh, So they valued juice, but that's not, that's not what Jesus has when he institutes Lord's Supper. So you need bread and you need wine. Okay. That's the, that's the matter. The form. This is my body. This is my blood. This is my body. So, and it's longer than that. This is my body, which is given for you. Right. This is my blood to take away sin. That's it. You get you get a different presentation of which ones before which, right, um, in scripture. But that can't vary. The words of institution have to be there, or it's not the Eucharist. So, bread and wine, not Doritos and Pepsi, not whatever you not not what you're making up. You know, to, to, to say I want this to be the bloody body and blood of Jesus for me. You can't do that. Um, the the form right the intent that you are legitimately observing and celebrating his death and his resurrection okay and then the minister is the one that gets people because up until the Reformation the church had always said like categorically always said any Eucharist not under the authority of the bishop is invalid we just talked about validity and invalidity a minute ago so think about that a an atheist can baptize but only a bishop or a priest can celebrate the Eucharist. Talk about a wild line. But that's what the church is always taught. It's always taught. You don't get into people who aren't bishops or priests celebrating the Eucharist until people start to reject the apostolic succession and come away from that and build separate ecclesiastical bodies. Okay? But those two things are established in Scripture. Now, there's something very different about the Eucharist, though, and it's this, race sacramenti. Uh, you have signum and you have race. Augustine does a good job of breaking this down for us. Signum is the sign. Race is the reality. In the Eucharist, we have the thing fully signified really present. The bread and the wine are hosts for the body and blood. Now, the body and the blood are fully in the bread and fully in the wine. It's not like the bread is the body and the wine is the blood. Like that's not, doesn't work that way so if you don't get the, the chalice you only got the body of Jesus you didn't get his blood no 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 <laughs> doesn't doesn't work like that as a matter of fact he doesn't seem to have any blood in his resurrected body because when he appears in Luke 24 he says he has flesh and bone it does not it doesn't say he has blood and you see that shift in scripture his blood is the Eucharist after the resurrection that's, that's an important part, part theologically here. Whether the resurrected bodies themselves li- literally have blood is not the point of the scripture of the, of those stories as much as it is to recount the insistence that the blood of Jesus is in the Eucharist, right? And as Ignatius says, it's the medicine of immortality. This is the warning of Paul that if you come forward to receive the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner, meaning you're living in unrepentant sin, you don't, or, or you, um, You don't come near with lively faith. You are eating the sacrament, and you're bringing judgment on yourself. It's really the body and blood of Jesus. How does that happen? Well, this is where the church has argued about this, and we've talked about the Eucharist in the past, but it's, it's really the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist. The bread and the wine are hosts for that awesome reality, to put it that way. It's really him. And, you know, we could talk about some of the other devotional practices that that develop, but it's so much so really him that as far back as we have written records from Justin Martyr in about 140, 150 A.D., he says that the sacrament that was left over was taken that day to the shut ins and to the sick who couldn't make it. We have Cyprian basically 100 years later in Carthage writing about the sacrament that was being reserved. We know as far back as it can be. That when the Eucharist was celebrated, if it wasn't all consumed, what they had was reserved. They kept it in a special way. They didn't take it home and turn it into sandwich bread, which is what some of the Puritans were doing. And so I I bring that up because you find certain prohibitions about not keeping the the sacramental bread after the service. You know, you can't take it out. You can't take it out of the building. Why are they saying that kind of stuff? It's not because... They're primarily resisting reserved sacrament. No, they're resisting these Puritan abuses that were treating it as common bread when it was done. The the bread and the wine after the consecration, when they become the body and the blood, retain their consecrated status until they are uh, destroyed. Until the elements, the, the 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 elements, the matter is destroyed, either because they've been consumed or because they have decayed as it were uh i don't like i don't like using that language but we're talking molecularly here so you know they they, they've they been destroyed in the elements in the ground where they're where they're poured you know through a pricina or take it out somewhere where feet don't go because you don't trample the blood of jesus underfoot so that's baptism and that's the eucharist those are the two dominical sacraments and then we have the other five in general we have seven But you can always put a question mark there because somebody will say, wait a second, I thought the other five had those things about them that we can't... Yes, they do. They do. They're seven. They're seven in the prayer book. Rome has seven. The East, well, they have a lot, but they're content to talk about the seven. On their website, (laughs) they have
2: seven. Right.
1: (laughs) That's how we get truth, man. What's a website? Exactly. That's your official publication.
2: That has to mean something.
1: I did a lot of talking on this one. So here's here's how I'd like to wrap this up with your permission, Caleb. Okay. Okay. I want to (laughs) know... Your personal experiences of being in service where every Sunday there's the Eucharist. And then right now we only celebrate one other time a week. I want to get to where the Eucharist is daily, but the church has got to grow and I got to get more, more priests here with me and, you know, build out that way. But we're by location, Try by location, location. I could pull a Padre Pio. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but I'm curious. And if you want to talk about any of the others of the other six, whether it's baptism, um, you know, the other five, you know, what, Reflect with me a little bit. Chew the fat, if you could.
2: Um, I think I think for me personally, knowing what is happening, um, every single week as we're receiving the Eucharist, even before that, effectually, um, seeing what is happening with that grace that's being extended, um, I, I think is a big. I'm a big proponent now, like the idea of if I miss a Sunday and that doesn't happen, like my weekly, like my weekly rhythm. Is thrown off, um, and not just like, oh, I missed Sunday. And a lot of times it's because I'm at I'm at drill, like missing that. Like you can like feeling the difference. Uh, the other one that I think is really big is because I mean we're talking about things that are like happening, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, on the regular. Um, for example, we're not uh, getting baptized every every Sunday. You, just once. You, you just once. Just the once. Uh, just to clarify that. And I think the other one is um, the penance or the absolution. Okay. I th- I that is one that I think is vital. I think it is so important um because it there's like just with the prayer of humble access, it really makes you evaluate because it's um there's not much left after that like just what it what it covers um saying just generally you know by um hold on the
1: prayer of humble access, and not the general, prayer of, confession. The general confession. My okay, bad.
2: I literally actually was googling it earlier. Actually, something completely unrelated, and I googled the wrong thing because uh, I don't know why my brain wasn't working. It's a COVID fog, I think so. <laughs> um, but the prayer of confession, and uh, just generally things that you do on purpose, the things that you're not doing on purpose, or the things that you don't do that you're supposed to do, and then ultimately saying, "I have not perfectly um, acted out the two greatest commandments." Right. Um, and asking for grace in those. And I think there's something powerful about that being part of not just your personal rhythm, but your community rhythm as a church, that every single week, together, we're confessing that we're falling short and that we need forgiveness and petitioning that the Lord would give us the grace to go on and to, to work through those things. There's something powerful about that. There's, and I, I brought that point up during Lent, and it's it's not as heavy uh, during ordinary ordinary time or non-penitentiary uh, um, seasons. I, it's not as heavy during those times, but it's still there. It's worked into our weekly rhythms. Like for example, during Lent, I mean, it's heavy. Like the the, the repentance right. that is happening is very heavy. But I think you you need still. You can't say, well, I repented during Lent. That's good enough. Like. You know, one, you know, not one and done, but that just little, those few days there were set. I think that's important. And then even just, um, in my, my marriage, uh, seeing that this is what is actually happening and it changes your focus of your
1: marriage. Um, you're married for the other person. If the marriage is sacramental, you realize that you're married for your spouse. Like you, you mm-hmm. you're, you're married to love the other person. And to love the other person is not uh, selfishness you you find out what the other person needs and you provide that yeah it's not selfish and the number of divorces in our present culture in and outside the church is because people perceive marriage to be about some kind of actualization in themselves instead of entering into a covenant to give love to another and then that that bond exists to create children, to yes. love them, and to train them in godliness.
2: Exactly. I thought that the uh, the articulation uh, from some of the Eastern Orthodox, their perspective on marriage was excellent. Um, because they said the point of, of marriage as a sacrament, because tons of people are married and tons of people have children. Yeah. And pray, procreate. Like, there's nothing different, but what is the difference in, uh, marriage being a sacrament, like the sacrament of marriage? And one of the points they brought up was the, the intent is to create, um, e- like not just a family that will die, but will live forever because of the spiritual heritage that you're passing on to your children. Right. And I think that's where we really start to, to enter into the, the sacrament of not just, oh, wow, you're, you, you reproduced. Like, or you said a few vows. I think that's where we really start to enter into the Christian understanding: is we are not trying to create a family that will live on this earth right now. Not that the physical is bad, but we are aiming to create um, eternal f- families. Yeah,
1: essentially,
0: like that goes beyond the grave.
1: How about you, Caleb?
0: Uh, like, what do you mean? For like, what do you, how you feel about it? Or what pretty much, you yeah. About it?
1: Because I mean, what's the difference between? thinking about the sacraments as actual means of grace and how you, we experience that as opposed to thinking of them as ordinances or whatever they would have been defined, you know, like you got your Jesus cracker and juice at the, at one church, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and you did it like once every, every six weeks or something or,
0: you know. I, yeah. I mean, I don't explain some of it because a lot of it's, um, it's just over the years as I start to see things or I start to compare it to other things. Cause I don't, I don't know if this is the right mindset to have, but like when I look at Christianity within the, like just within one sense, like just as the whole, if I take myself out of it and I look at it logically, what do I see and what do I view? How does it stack up against other things like it, other religions or other groups of people or collectives? So whenever I start to take those things on, I start to look at those things, I need some sort of basics or some sort of mindset of like, what are the importances of Christianity or what are the importances of all these other things? So, like, when I view the sacraments, I view it as, like, these are the things listed off to be very specific, kind of for that purpose a little bit. Like
1: distinguishing marks.
0: Distinguishing marks. And not just only for that, but just for any mindset that even comes into the future. Where it's, like, with a lot of these things, you have that, I don't know, it's not necessarily that it's the combination of the spiritual and the physical always with it. Or, I don't know. I don't know if you could Uh, say that or
1: not. we, We are composite creatures. Right. And the sacraments preserve the composite quality of what we are
0: because that's my that's my biggest thing is because sometimes i always try to i naturally try to separate those things but i need i I usually try to interrelate them more or i need to start interrelating them more that's probably the wrong word but okay (laughs) interconnecting maybe um but definitely with that when i look at you chris that's what i do because i see the points where i kind of deviate like if i start going off and kind of some thinking i start to kind of deviate from even all my mindset and all my energy goes up into this different ideas or these different topics and i go nuts on them but like then i sit there and i think of when are you comparing the god with it or are you comparing like at least the christian life with these things as well so like you start going off and having fun with uh either metaphysics or you start going and having fun with i think even my friend were having a conversation like how would light actually wrap around in a black hole <laughs> does light happen do, we, do photons have gravitational pull do they even weigh anything at all? I just like different stuff. Like <laughs> hey. we're just having fun, just sitting there talking about. It. I know it's nerd stuff, but but even different things. But it's just like I don't know. I think there's it's the thing that connects me back to. It's like I, even though my mindset can go off and it thinks about crazy stuff that goes on, I can always still come back and at least for I would say for Eucharist in that sense, it kind of gives me my point to center and realize that a lot of this stuff isn't complicated. It's not overly outrageous it's just there's kind of a correct way to do things and then there's the acceptance that comes in and because also with those overthinkings there's the life with the person like all the things done all the things left undone you know of what i am or what i should have done and all and there is that point where if you have that mindset and you have that remembrance about you you kind of remember every bad every bad thing you've done or everything you failed there is kind of that point it's hard to forget but then when you do have like and i think it's a mixture of penance and eucharist as well there is the point where it kind of Levels you where it actually says it is taken away. And there's logical arguments you even try to come up with yourself of why it shouldn't be, but it doesn't matter because it is. Right. There's a silence in that. And it's kind of a silence in the mind when you have that point, And then you go and you receive the Eucharist. Now you're, and then you take it in. It's like, well, I don't deserve it right, but you still get it though, in that sense. And of course, done within, you know, no, obviously right, not because, with you, a non repenting heart, obviously, right. but that person, that mindset, they would have a repenting heart, you know? So. And that's what I mean by the connection of these things, or at least the connection to the church. And I think that's really when you start to go off in your life, you start to see, oh, and you learn all these cool things, which I think even with the podcast, it's really awesome that we kind of get to learn about different things of Christian history. But there's also those parts where you get to really embrace where it's like, you also have something that's been a connection through thousands of years of Christian history, that they're doing what you've been doing. And I, I that's what I think of, at least when yeah. I see the sacrament. And that's why I consider them as a kind of joke, the sa- they're sacred where <laughs> they are, but they're, they have high importance for those things at least for me personally, when I think of all that stuff, marriage, I've never been married. So I don't, I don't really, I don't really feel, I mean, I get, you know, I I agree with everything you guys are saying, but I don't really feel a personal relation towards that. Sure. But yeah, yeah.
1: the the sacraments are really conveying the grace they signify to us. um, Especially, especially the Eucharist. It's really the body and blood of Jesus and we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs from underneath his Mm -hmm. table, but he is the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy Um, or property is always to have mercy as one, one one version goes. So these are good things for us to chew on because you stop the way you pray changes. He's already broken through. He's already present and he can't be any more present than he already is. And so now you just open your hands and you begin to receive. And when you hear people saying, I just wish I could meet God, come to church and come with living faith and begin to hear and understand, and you'll discern a great deal. And he's really at work. And and the sacraments, they are the things that are ordering our lives, ordering the life of the church to help us with all this. And
2: and I I think it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning and back to the articles is that they're not meant to be gazed upon. They're not about to be just uh, theorized or... Uh, to th- be thought about or to all these different things, they, they truly are meant to be experienced and to be part of our church life that
0: it's necessary for them to be so. Well, I think that covers this topic. I think it pretty well. Uh, if you have any questions, again, send those questions over to, uh, you can send them over to me at Kale Ridgeway at AppalachianAnglican.com. That's C-A-L-E-B. R-I-D-G-E-W-A-Y or until I make another account that is just questions at Appalachian Anglican <laughs> which I did forget to do this week now that I'm thinking about it but oh well I could it's send them there point. I guess for now <laughs> <laughs> but alright I think that's going to be it for us today uh, once again I'm Caleb and I'm here with Adam and I'm Daryl and we'll see you all next week